Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Akash Pound. I'm very pleased to be here on behalf of the Institute for Government to chair this discussion on the levelling up puzzle using evidence to create inclusive growth. Um, and uh, the Institute for Government is very pleased to be working in partnership with MasterCard um, on this event. And we'll be hearing from Ben Wilson from MasterCard about the company's interest in this agenda um, in a few moments. Um, so the purpose of the event is to have a conversation about how government and how policymakers at all different levels of government actually can use evidence and data to make better policy and spending decisions in support of levelling up and, and inclusive growth, meaning growth whose benefits are shared widely across the country and among different groups of uh, citizens. And we're holding this event, of course, I think at a very timely moment at which the government, the Conservative Party, maybe the country at large is engaged in a lively debate about um, economic and, and, and fiscal policy and, and the right way forward for the government. It's just 10 days ago, of course, seems like longer perhaps, the Chancellor announced his growth plan, signalling a change of course and raising big questions about the status of the, the levelling up agenda and, and some of the commitments um, made previous, by the previous administration. And those are the questions I hope we'll be discussing today. Is the government still committed to, to that agenda of narrowing the gaps in terms of skills, productivity, jobs, health and educational out and outcomes between different regions of the country? If so, um, are the missions as set out in the white paper the right one? What measures should the government be, be using to assess and report on, on its progress? Does Whitehall, does the centre have the necessary local knowledge and data to, to take good decisions or is this necessary an agenda where local decision making and devolution is really going to be um, the, the, the route to success? Um, and in which case, how do local government uh, actors themselves use, use data and evidence to inform their own uh, strategies? So these are some of the, the big questions that um, I think we're going to hear some very interesting insights on from our excellent panel, who I will now introduce. So first to speak in a few moments will be Ben Wilson from MasterCard. Ben is uh, Vice President of Public Policy for Europe at MasterCard. Uh, he's worked for the company for over eight years. And Ben will be speaking, among other things, about the company's um, inclusive growth score, which is a data-driven uh, platform that has been created to provide insights into to local economic and social performance all across the UK. Um, so uh, looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, following on from Ben, uh, we'll be hearing from Jack Brereton MP, who is Member of Parliament for Stoke-on-Trent South, uh, where he was elected in 2017, winning the seat from Labour. Prior to that, Jack uh, served on Stoke-on-Trent City Council. Um, I think you're a councillor while still studying, which is very impressive. <laughs> um, and then were elected as, at the time, I think the youngest Conservative MP in the House. Uh, Jack's now a member of the all-party parliamentary group for Left Behind Neighbourhoods, so in very much engaged in this debate around levelling up and uh, increase improving outcomes in, in underperforming parts of the country. Um, we'll then be uh, hearing from Councillor Louise McKinley. Louise is Deputy Leader of Essex County Council and Cabinet Member for Community Equality Partnerships and Performance. I think I got that right. <laughs> but which basically means that Louise is the, the portfolio lead for, for levelling up and has led on the County Council's um, Leveling Up Essex strategy, which was launched, I think, just before the government published its white paper. So very interested to hear more about that and, and how that aligns with, with government policy and, and what you've been able to do locally. Um, and then last but not least, uh, pleased to be joined by my colleague Tom, Tom Pope, who is Deputy Chief Economist at the IFG, member of our public finance team, um, and previously worked at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, so I've asked each of the panellists in the order I've just introduced them to speak for just a few minutes initially 
On that headline question, how can government use evidence and data to make better policy and spending decisions in support of levelling up? We'll then have, in the usual way, some discussion among the panel and hopefully plenty of questions from the audience too. Um, we are recording the session, uh, so I think the audio will be up on our website afterwards. Uh, when we come to Q&A, there'll be a roving mic and so on. Um, so that's all for me by way of introduction. Thanks again to you all for coming and pleased to introduce Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks, Akash. Um, thank you all for coming and, and great to work with you guys again. This is a, a really, really um, interesting issue, which I hope um, is going to spur quite a, a lively discussion as well. So um, you stole my first line when saying it's the most important uh, time in our economic journey. Well, I'm sure that phrase has been used in every single fringe in the, uh, the, uh, the conference this year, but um, it really is. It's hugely important that, um, at the moment that we look at levelling up as an opportunity um, to address some really rather pressing economic and social issues. Um, we need to address growth. Um, we need growth as inclusive. We need um, look at it as a, a, an opportunity to benefit local communities. And we need growth that's sustainable. Um, but to do this, we need to not just focus on places, we need to focus on people. And we need to look at um, approaching insight-driven um, public services or interventions um, at a hyper-local level. Um, so it's data that informs and measures social as well as economic growth. And that's really, really important to know where we come at this, uh, this, this challenge. So over the past two decades, um, data science has revolutionized everything from um, looking at uh, uh, prevention and treating diseases through to um, how we look at more inclusive economies and most recently, how we can um, negate the effects or challenge the effects of a global pandemic. I mean, at the height of the pandemic, MasterCard was working with various parts of the government to help inform, um, really, almost in real time, decisions on interventions, from funding through to uh, um, uh, looking at uh, how retail was affected. Um, and it's really important because we know there's been a huge advance in data science in the private sector. You will have seen a lot of that in many cases. But perhaps, and where we're looking at it today, that has not been the case in civil society and in the state at the moment. So how can we use um, the private sector and uh, um, the public sector to work together to sort of address uh, the challenge in insight and the challenge in intervention? So using the right data and timely data is vital, in our view, to um, I suppose, driving investment and policies that are evidence-based. So you can actually focus it on a postcode level, um, measure impact, and then refocus if required. Um, we know that devolution deals and um, local decision-making um, are key decisions or key mechanisms of delivering uh, regional investment. So um, growth improves the living standards are essential for levelling up. Um, and data is really the key to this. It can, affect, it can be positive for citizens um, who can have a more tailored uh, public service experience, um, have their, um, what they, everything they need, but more focus on them rather than on a town or um, uh, a region. Um, government, data innovation allows just more efficient application of public services. It allows more targeted. It, it, it allows them to do what they intend to do and do so more efficiently. Um, and for businesses, especially uh, small businesses as well, allows um, support and um, um, strategic decisions to be made um, at a local level rather than at a regional or, um, or um, um, postcode level. So that's why we developed the Inclusive Growth Score uh, tool, which um, you'll see on your, your table. It's a free service. It mixes our transaction data um, from across card and account, account networks with open source data from across multi multiple sources. It, uh, um, the tool blends, um, I think it's a different uh, open source data from 21 different sources. It focuses on people, it focuses on e the economy, and it focuses on places. Um, it's there to drive an index of inclusion, economic and social, on a macro, sorry, micro level, on a hyper level. So you can look at a specific postcode and uh, measure just how inclusive it is. It's free to use. It's there for everybody in the country to use. Um, like I said, it's, it's, it's accurate. We're using it with a, a number of uh, regional authorities already. So I'd recommend um, looking at it and uh, just seeing if it works for you guys as well. Um, 
So I'll leave it there for time. Maybe we'll cover lots of other issues over the course of the next few minutes. But it would be certainly useful to get your take on is data being used appropriately and just how, mm -hmm. how granular data could actually help and what you do. Yeah, great. Thanks very much, Ben. And yeah, indeed, I think this is th th this very hyper-local granular data that, that, well, that you provide, but increasingly government is, is trying to collect and use better um, in the way you've described. I think that's, that's crucial, actually. So really interested to hear more thoughts on that. Okay, uh, Jack, over to you. Well, thank you. And thank you particularly to the Institute for Government for organising this fringe event on what I think is an extremely important topic. And it's fantastic to see uh, so many he people here because I think that demonstrates the real interest that there is in this issue and I think it demonstrates also how important it is that the government does remain uh, true to levelling up because actually levelling up matters to those areas right across the country and I think as Ben was touching on there it's not just about those places I think it's about the people mm. which is most important and uh, for me as MP for Stoke-on-Trent South it is uh, actually one of the key issues in our area. We are an area that has been uh, neglected by successive governments actually uh, in many cases. We have you know, many failed attempts to try and address many of these issues, long-standing issues uh, of deprivation, of underinvestment and how we overcome that is so important that we get the right solutions and that's where I think uh, data matters so much actually is because we have tried many times uh, to address some of these issues. We've you know, had many government schemes which have tried to uh, overcome some of the challenges, whether it be with uh, you know, deprivation, whether it be on health or uh, some of the other skills issues, things like that. Mm. And we've still not necessarily really overcome some of those issues of why some parts of the country aren't performing where they need to be. And I think particularly with this growth agenda at the moment, it is so important because if we are to get the UK economy firing on all cylinders, then we need every part of the UK to enable that. We cannot have parts of the country that have been left, that have forgotten, that do not perform as well as other parts. It's, it's quite frankly a disgrace that we have that situation. We need every part of the UK. If we're going to get growth up to 2.5% as uh, you know, the government wants to see, then we do need all parts of our economy fully performing, get productivity up right across the board. But how that looks across the country, and as, as Ben said about people, I think it means looking at how we can address some of the, the real issues of lack of engagement. And some of those issues aren't necessarily uh, based just on data either. I think there are some things that we do struggle to capture and struggle to understand necessarily because why people should engage, why they should take up skills opportunities, why they should improve their life chances, improve uh, those job opportunities, isn't just uh, so simple in many cases. We have to, you know, things like aspirations, uh, how do we measure that? You know, I think these sort of issues of how we actually uh, level up, truly level up these places and make sure that the opportunities uh, in those areas, that those aspirations really are where they need to be, needs to look at this in a much more holistic way than maybe we have done in the past. Um, and I think you know this is something which I hope that we're going to see continued focus on because I do think that for those communities, as I say, Stoke-on-Trent, where I represent, this is so important for us as a Conservative Party. You know, if we don't have those parts of the country where this matters most in the Midlands, in the North. Uh, if we don't have the support of those areas, that coalition that we built up at the last election, then we are not going to be in government moving forwards. So I think it is extremely important, and I hope that we are going to have a further, you know, extensive discussion here today about uh, how we can make sure that we actually do continue to deliver on those opportunities, that we do continue to ensure that the investment that we've put in, that the investment that we've focused as a government into those areas, that we actually deliver on that and maximise that, and that it has that long-lasting impact that we need to see. Thank you, Jack. Okay, um, so over to you, Louise, now to speak about your experience from Essex. Thank you, and good afternoon, everybody. So back in January, um, I launched Essex County Council's levelling up strategy. And people asked, why, well, why do we need to do that? Why do you need to level up Essex? It's an affluent, prosperous area, isn't it? And if you look at it at the county level, then yes, it is. But if you start to use the data and break that down, the picture is very different. 
So we have 123,000 people who live in the most 20% uh, most deprived wards within the, uh, the country. We also have a 30% attainment gap between those who live in, at key stage four, between those who live in the more affluent areas and those in the more deprived. And we have a 12-year gap in life expectancy. So the picture in reality is very different depending on which part of the, the county you come from. So the data that we have used has been really important and crucial to us actually being able to put our plans in place. And by plans, I'm talking about targeted intervention. And of course, before you can do that, you need to understand your problem and you need to know where the, where the issues lie. So it's not just been about identifying people and place, which, um, which the strategy does, does very much focus on. We, we found six key areas that we've, uh, we've put as, as priorities and four cohorts of people. But within those communities, the data has allowed us to understand our community assets, where community ties are strong, and the outcomes for people where you have those in place are much better than where you don't. So we can start to use the data to put together what it is in terms of the problem and the picture, but also to then see what it is that we can do to start to move it forwards. Alongside um, the, the, the facts and the figures, we've also done a lot of work with Britain Thinks, which has enabled us to have a qualitative side to what we've done as well. So setting up focus groups, um, dealing with uh, the, the issues with you know, real-life families, so it's not just a, a, you know, an internal meeting or, or numbers on a spreadsheet, but it's actually about people's real lived experiences and being able to map that and, and, lis and listen to them and see what difference that makes has actually been you know, re really helpful. Um, and to give you one quick example, we have identified learning disabilities as one of the most vulnerable groups, as you'd expect. And through some of the work that we're doing, we've actually been able to um, reduce the levels of, of the extent of the package looking forward that some of the people have needed. Uh, just a one in three rather than one in 11, 11 before. And that was all about understanding their needs and where they were going in terms of their, their future lives. So when it comes to the, the government's white paper, there's obviously a clear link there around devolution. And we've seen with some of the uh, recent results that have come out of Greater Manchester around life expectancy, that what that could mean. So I think there's a really important piece there for, for all of us to, to consider. But even if we put that to one side from a local government perspective, I think there's much more that we could all do. We all have our own, our own budgets, our own priorities, of course we do, but we're also in a place to really know our local communities. And what I've certainly been you know, really pushing for is for us to use our services in a way that can really help deliver some of the, the broader agenda. So our libraries, we're having conversations about libraries, we're having conversations about um, school readiness, and never the two do meet, and this doesn't make any sense. So we have literacy corners now in every single library across the county. We're doing outreach work, which is targeted in some of our more deprived uh, communities, working with local schools to understand what that means for children and also to support their parents. So really taking a look at ourselves internally and thinking, well, what can we do? And then, of course, expanding that out with our partners as well. So we work very closely with the health service. Um, we've got some you know, very strong relations with um, some of the... Uh, the local schools, we're also thinking about you know, the religious groups. There's, it's a whole myriad of people and organisations who've come together in this. So data, to, to conclude, data is absolutely key if we're to understand the problem, what it is that we can do about it, and then obviously put in place the measures to tackle it. Okay, really interesting. Thanks very much. And um, just before I bring in Tom, out of interest, um, the levelling up Essex strategy, um, as mentioned, I mean, that was published and, and launched before the government kind of belatedly maybe kind of clarified what it meant <coughs> by levelling up. I mean, is that something that you really just got on with and, and did yourselves within the council or was it a sort of, was it co-produced in any way with, with White or with the Department for Levelling Up? So we work very closely with the This Is Purpose Coalition, which is led by um, Justine Greening, the former Education Secretary, and they have set out some very clear um, metrics and also values around what, what can underpin levelling up, and that's everything from you know, early years, the digital divide, what it means for health. Um, so we based a lot of our work around the research that they'd already mm. done, and that was, that was really important. And it's interesting, actually, because I think particularly with the early years, if you read the governments, I think there's a gap in that. There isn't a big focus in, on the early years in the way that I would have expected there to be. Mm. And there's, there's mm. so much data and evidence around you know, where you start is can very much determine where you end up in terms of life, life's choices. So, um, so yes, we, we worked with them, but it, it, we very much laid it out as one of our priorities. Mm. 
So um, this, along with climate change, so almost regardless of what the government was doing, it was something that we were going to progress within Essex. Um, but of course, it feeds in very neatly with the, with the government's plans now as well. Yeah, OK, thanks very much. And I think that point about um, the absence of any targets around early years is something that the IFGs identified, in fact. Perfect segue. I think, Tom, it was you and colleagues um, in an analysis of the white paper that, that pinpointed that as one of the big gaps, actually. So that may be one of the things you want to talk yeah. about. But um, yeah, over to you, Tom. Absolutely. Thanks very much. It's great to, to be here. As Akash mentioned, um, I've been doing a bunch of work looking at levelling up from the IFG's perspective. And I just want to make two points about um, the use of evidence. One, I suppose, at a slightly higher level about the role of evaluation and understanding what works at every level of government when we're delivering policy. And then second, specifically about the use of data and the benefit of the hyperlocal data, particularly when combined with further devolution. So on, on the high level and, and evaluation, um, yeah, I'm sure lots of us would agree in principle, you know, we should be using the evidence to tell us what works to, to drive levelling up, to improve economy, economic outcomes, social outcomes as well. Um, what we did at the IFG have been doing over the past year or so, we, we took a look at the evidence, looking more at the economic side of levelling up, looking at which policies, actually is there a solid evidence base to say that they will work to drive um, improved economic growth in, in the regions. And there is some evidence out there. What actually is really notable is how thin the evidence base is mm -hmm. and actually how, how often we don't know what works. And in particular, past interventions that successive governments have have gone through and, and Jack mentioned that there have been a, a series of different um, approaches by different governments and they clearly haven't worked because the outcome hasn't changed but also we don't know what aspects of them haven't worked and, and lots of that comes down to the fact that they haven't been evaluated properly and I think when a policymaker, when a politician comes to um, deliver a new set of policies to try to drive change evaluating that is, is never top of their mind because they're focused on, on the here and now, delivering change in the next couple of years. That's always the, the priority. It's, it's completely understandable. Um, but the problem is that you know, policy is actually much longer term than that, and there's going to be another set of politicians coming along in, the, in a few years' time trying to achieve something quite similar. And if you've not put the effort into evaluating the first thing, you're, you're sort of starting at ground zero again and you know, one thing that, that we've identified the NAO have identified as well is a failure to properly evaluate um, leveling up policies regional growth policies in advance that means that we're effectively starting at ground zero every time and, and that matters because if you want to use public money in the most effective way you need to understand how it's going to work which types of transport policy are most likely to actually lead to um, to better economic outcomes, what types of innovation policy should be a priority in the R&D budget, which skills interventions actually lead to the best outcomes for, you know, the, the co which courses lead to the best economic outcomes for people taking them. That's already important. If we don't have those answers, our policy is going to be much less effective. And I think, I think it also ties into this broader problem uh, that Jack mentioned of lots of different interventions coming and going over time. Because if you haven't got the solid evidence base behind a policy or a program, it's far too easy when a new pol politician comes in and wants to try something different to sort of get rid of it. If you've got a solid evidence base that something works really well, that is then much likely to stick around, more likely to stick around and work in the long term. And these are all policy areas. If we're going to achieve levelling up, it's not going to be a, an 18-month or a two-year agenda. <coughs> I mean, we're talking about early years policy, where you know, it's an area actually where the evidence base is stronger than that is a really good way to drive growth. But it's not going to really drive growth until you know, 20 years' time when today's toddlers are in the labour market. Now, that's a really long-term policy, and you need to have consistent policy over time. And I think you know, solid evaluation as part of the policy-making process is really important. And actually, that is one thing that um, the white paper was very strong on. And you know, I think various people have criticised the white paper for not having the policies and the money to drive the necessary change. One thing that I think it got absolutely spot on was an identification of the problem that we've had of churning through these policies of not understanding what works. So that the levelling up missions, which I know we'll go on to talk more about, but also a focus on making policy better, evaluating policy and making that more of a core part of the policy process, having a spatial analysis of every policy area. That's absolutely right. And I think if this government is serious about um, regional policy, it should be uh, continuing with, with that aspect of the levelling up agenda, at least. Uh, and just briefly, 
uh, to go more, more specific on, on the use of data. Um, a real benefit of devolution in principle should be, and Louise talked about this, the ability to tailor policy more locally. Na national strategy, national politicians are not going to be able to tailor things specifically to different local areas. They, they don't have the knowledge. And I think there are, there are two aspects to local knowledge. Partly it's that you're in the community, you can see what's going on, you're talking to businesses, you're talking to the third sector in that area. But I also think data is a really important part of it as well, because you know, as, as strong as those links might be, I think they can always tell a partial or, or misleading picture. And that's where having better data to actually identify needs, and particularly, um, as Ben mentioned, that's kind of hyper-local need, and where demands might be different within communities, where communities might be being missed, I think is, is really important. Uh, just to give one, one example here, I, I think sort of the use of data can really enhance local decision-making would be in, in skills and understanding skills mismatches. So the mismatch between the skills that the local population, the workers have, and the skills that are being demanded by, um, by businesses and employers. Now, to an extent, you can ask employers about that, but you can also use vacancy data and use data from, that um, DFE has on actually the skills of people who are living in an area to have a, a much kind of more refined sense of where the gaps are. And you can then use that to you know, talk to your um, universities and colleges and say these are the types of skills that we need more of. And I know particularly in, in the combined authority areas that's something that's happening much more. So that, that's just, just one example. It applies in lots of other policy areas as well. But I think that yeah, be better use of of the evidence and having a better evidence base and then using data to better identify needs are absolutely core cool to being successful in levelling up. Mm. Okay, terrific. Thanks, thanks, Tom. Okay, so I think there's been a, a few very uh, interesting themes raised that I'd like to um, just have a bit of a conversation about. So, Jack, I was going to come to you first, actually. Uh, Tom's talked quite a bit about the need for government to to do better in uh, gathering and evaluating data and, and learning what works, not you know to avoid constantly reinventing the wheel and so on. Um, I think that's, well, interested in your thoughts broadly on how well government does that and how it could do it better. And then I, th I believe that the APG, APPG you're part of is actually doing an inquiry at the moment trying to gather data on uh, some of these kind of initiatives. So if there's, if there's any insights from that as well. Well, well, yeah, I think I mean, it's the nature of democracy, isn't it? That, uh, you know, we have five years, four years, and then we have another government. So, you know, I think it is, unfortunately, one of uh, the disadvantages. I, I, I am a pro, uh, you know, a Democrat, but I think there are the, the fact that we have short-term financial programs is um, one of those problems. And we do need to look better at how we can, uh, and it's not just in issues of levelling up, but across the board at how we can better uh, make those longer term uh, decisions and longer term uh, policy making because things like prevention for example you know if we're going to do more preventative uh, health uh, treatment uh, to try and reduce the demand on our NHS that takes far longer than uh, you know uh, to realize those benefits than immediately expecting that um, you know some uh, preventative mental health work would reduce the demand so it's the same across much of government policy that we do need to be thinking about how we can better have uh, programs that are going to deliver those long-lasting impacts and I think a lot of what we we often do uh, unfortunately ends up being quite ineffective um, because you know the interventions that we make often don't have that uh, that, that wider impact I, I mean you know, things like um, in, in uh, job centres where we've got somebody coming in to, uh, who's uh, on universal credit, they will have a 10-minute interview um, with um, you know, their work coach, uh, be signposted, you're going on this programme, and then that's it. You know, 10 minutes is not sufficient to be able to actually determine what is best for that individual to get them into a position where they're work ready, where they can take up an opportunity, take up a job and move forward. Yeah. Uh, and we're often getting people put on to the wrong sort of courses that then end up wasting lots of uh, taxpayers' money and end up with high failure rates. And we wonder why. Um, you know, and this is the case in, you know, in colleges as well. You know, we have, in many colleges, we have high dropout rates or you know, high uh, failure rates on, on, uh, in, in terms of 
the success of those courses, of young people taking up those courses, actually we need to take a bit of a step back and say what is best for those individuals because we've been very you know, focused in this country on you know, this is right and this is the programme you do and that's it basically uh, to, to achieve and actually it, it isn't necessarily like that for, for people. We are, we're all human and one uh, strategy that works for uh, one individual won't work for another and you know, we look at people with um, uh, you know, people who might have a disability you know, we often, uh, you know, the fact that we've only got 15% of people with a disability in the workforce, I think we're doing something wrong there. Um, you know, why is, why is it that people who actually have got a huge amount to give, potentially, we're not taking advantage of that talent and we're losing out on that talent? Um, you know, I think we need to really think again about, and it, it does require an adjustment to how we do things. It requires an adjustment to how we do things in education, in, in the workplace, um, but there's a lot to be gained from that. You've talked about um, the APPG, and we are doing some really excellent work actually there about looking at a data-led approach in some of those left-behind neighbourhoods. I've got um, three um, wards in my constituency which are in the left-behind category. Uh, one of those is the sixth highest um, in, in the country actually. Um, and that's not just looking at, um, you know, in terms of deprivation, but it's looking at that, um, uh, those wider issues, the social capital within that community, you know, the facilities in that community, the lack of transport connectivity, all these factors that add together to make the, the situation of how deprived that uh, area is even worse. Um, and it's how can we address not just, you know, uh, the, the barriers uh, that, that result in that deprivation. But why is why is it that we, you know, somebody can't get into a job, can't get into skills? There are multi multiple barriers actually to entry um, that we need to address. And I think levelling up isn't just about one thing. Isn't about just creating a nice new shiny building on a regeneration site. It's actually how do we address the multiple layers um, that that are impacting and, and holding these areas back really. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. And, and Louise, how, how do you at the council level um, try to make sure you're, you're learning as you go? Like how, how well do you do that evaluation piece to, to, to avoid um, yeah, reinventing the wheel and, and maybe um, you know, spending money in an inefficient way? And then I had a second question for you as well, which is uh, where do you think devolution fits in? But a couple of the, well, I think everyone's mentioned it in some respect, um, and do you want to see a, a county devolution deal for Essex? So, so on the evaluation piece, um, you know, data, we've all spoken about data in terms of identifying the problem and then putting in place what it is that we're going to do, and of course something needs to come out the other end. And, um, and in my experience, we very much talk about outputs rather than outcomes. So, you know, the X, X number of people attended this course great, you know, did they have a nice time or did it actually lead to jobs, what yeah. is it? They're, they're very different, so and that, that's what we're really targeting now, is making sure that where we are investing and putting initiatives in place, that the outcomes are actually measurable. In terms of devolution, um, I think I'd say, say two things really, that the first is just to really underline what I, I said when I opened up about the opportunities to do something here and now without deals, and I think that's often missed. It, it is about the, the right level if you're talking about local government or national government, um, in terms of when we take those, make those decisions. So, you know, if it's a massive infrastructure project, of course that's going to be on a national, regional basis. Um, if you've got local data like we have around school readiness and literacy levels, then that's on a local basis. So it, it's about the, the right people at the right level taking taking those decisions. And, and we can do that without a Devo deal. So um, I, would, I would really stress that, that a lot can be done without any sort of official structure. Um, all of that said, obviously, with a Devo deal would come more opportunity and responsibility that, that you know, is, is in essence the point of them. Um, and that we have seen across the, across the country where they have worked, and certainly in Essex we are in discussions uh, locally with, uh, with partners and understanding what that could mean for Essex. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. And, uh, I mean, Tom, just on, on this issue that yeah, you spoke a bit about, I mean, what does the evidence of devolution... What does the evidence say, um, do we think, about what are the functions that maybe are best held centrally, regionally, locally? To what extent can we kind of address that as a, 
you know, objective, empirical question in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Louise is exactly right that what is key is finding the right level for different types of policy and also within each area, clarity on the roles of, of different levels. And I think the, the economic literature on this stuff is a little bit messy because there's just so much going on in terms of you know, you're trying to compare across countries different devolution setups. Does that lead to more growth? Does that not? And I think you know, probably that, that's not the best way to go about the question. I think instead what's really important is yeah, clarity on, you know, we, we have certain reasons why we think devolution might lead to better outcomes, whether that be the importance of local knowledge and local tailoring or um, you know, the ability to, to use evidence better, say, at a local level. And then there are other reasons why we might think that working at a local level might not be appropriate. For example, if there's a certain policy lever that could be almost used as a race to the bottom between two authorities. You, know, you don't necessarily think that every local authority should be setting its own corporation tax rate, for example. So I think what's really important is that clarity of level. And within this area of data, I think it's particularly interesting to think about the role of the centre as a kind of convener and preparer of data in, on a consistent basis across the country. You know, there's going to be some more analytical capacity in the centre than there might be in you know, every local authority. Mm really important that data is collected in a way that's consistent and therefore enables comparison across countries. We've some colleagues at the IFG did some work recently looking at um, the performance of public services in, in Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland and it was really hard to get comparable metrics across those areas and one of the big benefits of, of devolution at least in principle is that different areas try different things and you learn from each other and com comparable data is really important. I think central government absolutely has a role there, but certainly in some of these areas, um, like skills, there, there's a very clear case for the delivery and the strategy to be at a more local level. And I mean, as Louise said, I think it's important then to work out when is it the very local level, when is it more the, the regional level. Mm. Infrastructure perhaps shouldn't be at every district council designing that, but maybe some, po some policies, absolutely, the district council is the right level. And I think that's the, the framework that we need to be thinking this through and it should always be what's the appropriate role of different levels rather than I think there's some sort of tendency for every level to try to take as much power as as they can um, I think that's a, a better way to think think about it mm -hmm. okay thanks Tom and uh, Ben I mean on, on on that issue I mean from your you said you you've engaged with uh, both central government and uh, local government in, in some places um, what are your observations on both which functions are best carried yeah. out at which level, and also how well are the different levels of government working together, do you think, mm -hmm. um, in terms of both delivering the policies but also in sharing evidence and, and best practice and so on? So I would agree with what Thomas just said, actually, which is that there is a role at each individual level um, for ensuring that the, first of all, the best possible basis for evidence is there. Um, longevity of evidence is great if you can provide some um, semblance of continuity of uh, policy over the medium term. And that um, basis, I think, is best set at a, a central level where you can provide the uh, almost like a standardised approach to um, what sort of data will be useful to compare and contrast different areas. And it is all about going back to the banging back, back down the same point, it's all about hyper level activity, hyper level targeting. But in order to do that, you need um, a higher level set of parameters on how to measure and how to compare. And I think um, from the discussions we've had so far at a, um, a local level, I think this is relatively new as a, a, um, a concept that, uh, that data can inform more hyper-level uh, um, interventions. And we've had some positive discussions um, at a, a national level, but I do think that there is a, a more of the journey to go to convince um, policymakers that there is um, a role for them at a central level to set guidance at a local level, or at least um, pushing a certain direction makes it easier for intervention and measuring at a local level. Um, and again, I'm sure everybody in this room has a view on, on how that's w operating in practice. But from our perspective, it's going in the right direction, but there's so much more that can be done, which means how can you work with the private sector, how can you work with civil society to start defining what the right parameters are um, to measure um, measuring economic and social indexing, measure impact and measure where you need to intervene in the future. Can I come in on the devolution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was interested in yeah, what's the oh, yeah. state of play well, in, in I, your I part think of the world. To be frank, I think we barely stepped foot or 
dip toe in the water at the moment when it comes to um, you know devolution. And if you look, you know we've got probably the most centralised uh, you know system in the developed world certainly, and probably uh, well we have got more people working in central government in the developed world and more than ever before. So you know to, to say that we've done devolution still in that situation, you know I think we do need to think a bit more about what we are devolving and how much further that can go because and particularly around things like tax you know i think we do need to look and obviously we've got a very much a, a a low tax government now you know we need to be looking at what powers could we devolve in in those regards to a, a local level and you know things like the investment zones that are coming forward i think that's a real opportunity actually to maybe test out and pilot some of that mm -hmm. um and and pilot more of that uh, you know, tax reduction in certain parts of the country to make um, levelling up happen and to make that development happen where we, where we want it most uh, and where it's most important to do so. So, you know, I think there is a real need to, to look, um, look further at devolution because I don't think we have really, uh, uh, you know, been on that journey yet. I think we are just, uh, as I say, dipping the toe in the water. I think we need to look much, much more uh, broadly and be a bit braver, but I think there will be potentially resistance um, from maybe the civil service um, and central government towards this, but it doesn't mean that it isn't the right thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think there's certainly negotiations going on <laughs> yeah. in some parts of the country. I don't think um, Staffordshire is, is one of them, actually, at least from, from reports um, We're or, having some or are discussion. you pushing for a deal well, deal I mean, for your current not, not, not necessarily in the traditional sense, um, but it's slightly more complicated in, in uh, you know, sort of Staffordshire that would, it would probably be too long to go into that now. But, um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's part of the problem, actually, because, you know, devolution deals are not going to be the same for every part of the country, because not every part of the country is the same. And we've got, you know, a whole myriad of different types of local... Uh, government across the country and, and that's one of the issues particularly in Staffordshire actually you know we've yeah. got quite an unbalanced uh, local government system because Stoke-on-Trent's a unitary we've got two or three tier in the rest of Staffordshire so how do you square up those imbalances and how do you put in place a system which can satisfy everybody in in that sort of area yeah and it's very you know, complicated yeah exactly. yeah I mean these new county combined authorities are supposed to be the solution but we'll see okay uh, very keen to take some questions now from those in the room uh, so my colleague Lauren will bring a mic around so yeah I can see lady there and gentleman there uh, time for one more in the first round as well okay gentleman at the front so right, Terry Bossard from Chiselhurst and Bromley is this working um, I believe so Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Um, as an ex-teacher, I am amazed that you still haven't got, I mean, as a government, you could get in every single school a basic economy that all the children had to um, attend, along with simple lessons, cookery lessons. And it needn't be long courses. And the same, of course, in colleges as well because I know that um, a lot of them pick, you know, the children going into it pick easy courses that they can go. They can even have a go at the, the lecturers teaching them, saying, oh, well, we don't have to attend because if we don't, you, you won't be able to continue your course because you have to have so many in the course. Now, even if it's just, say, everybody had to attend, uh, basic economy lesson, even if it's only one or two, throughout the whole of schooling and you know, every year to um, make that sure they understand about how to save money and how to utilize money, mm -hmm. and also to get them thinking independently for starting their own businesses. As they get older, you can bring that in. Um, and um, also, if you have money to spend, it amazes me also that you're not <laughs> that the government are not actually implementing uh, tidal power in this country because that's a great thing we have. It will give a lot of jobs to people, and it's relatively cheap. I know it's expensive to start, but once you've got it going, um, that could um, help um, and lower the costs of um, energy, which is 
absolutely desperate at the moment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Yeah, so two, two very different questions there, but yeah. both interesting. So, yes, gentlemen there, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Mario Trabucco, Oldenburg Park Council, West Sussex. Um, I wanted to, uh, I've, I've had the chance to uh, look at the platform already. It looks great, fantastic, thank you. And uh, uh, I want to, wanted to ask uh, some technical questions. One is, uh, does, do, do the data include uh, um, index of multiple deprivation data? Uh, the second one is, uh, given the, the, the usual standard for local data or hyperlocal data is uh, breaking down data for, by, by lower level super, out, super output area, uh, how do, why did you choose, for example, postcode se sector? And uh, how do you square the difference between those two areas? Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly, a question on uh, interoperability. Uh, can you export the data? Can you plug them into a, uh, the, the local authority, uh, authority GIS? Can you, can you um, uh, have them as a layer on Parish Online, for example? All tools that would further probably the usage of the, this platform. And make it uh, make it easier to basically communicate with uh, other charities, uh, other uh, entities that use this kind of standard. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. Thanks. So, where did you say you're from? Uh, Oldenburg Parish Council. Okay, great. Um, okay, those are questions that I'm definitely going to pass to you in a minute, Ben. <laughs> to be clear, it's, uh, <laughs> we have not been involved in in developing yeah. the tool, but it's yeah, I, I look forward to your answers on those. Third question. Thank you, uh, Ricardo Tordera from the Payments Association. Uh, Excellent that you're going all of this uh, with data. I think it's fantastic. But what are we going to do next in terms of investment for creating the digital infrastructure that we need to ensure that inclusion becomes part of a government uh, policy? We have seen, uh, for example, in countries uh, in the African continent, how innovative payment systems have done a lot to grow local economies, talking about MPs in Kenya, the Ghanaian government is going on digital currencies, other countries are following this. Could this be an, an agenda also in Britain for helping these remote regions to sort of emerge faster than others? Thank you. Okay, thank you. So, um, do you want to take those sure. uh, technical questions first, Ben? <laughs> where I can, where I can. Um, or, yeah, I'm sure you'd be happy to, uh, to, to, to bring in colleagues in yes. via correspondence later about the technical details. And then if you want to touch on the other questions yeah, as well, sure. please do so. So um, in terms of the data, because of what we are able to, it's not all our data, but because of what we do, we process transactions across the whole of the UK, both card and account accounts. Um, anonymized aggregated allows us to see the flows of transaction, where money flows across the UK. Now that is a powerful tool when you add it to lots of other open source data. And that was the thinking in the first place. So in terms of postcode, that's the most granular we can get. I think the most granular we would want to be. And that can be quite granular. So, um, and that can actually help in terms of um, how you intervene and where you, um, where you uh, focus in terms of measuring impact. Um, why do we land on that? Well, it's, we, we saw where the, and this was obviously trialed in the US in the first place, but in the UK we saw where the gaps in both in terms of coverage and in terms of um, the timing of data were, and we thought we can help with this. We can focus it on a granular level, we can focus, we can help deliver um, almost real-time uh, measurements of, of um, economic indexing and uh, social economic indexing. Um, in terms of interoperability, in theory, yes, we're thinking of how, looking at how we can do that. At the moment, it's just that tool. It's that tool, but on both sides of the coin, one, are there any other open source uh, data that we could plug into it to expand the parameters and expand the, um, the measurement. And I think one of the things that we're looking at in the future, how can we make some of the data available um, for plugging into? So again, we're, we're, this is early days, I mean really early days, but we're really, really um, open to suggestions from everybody as to how this data could be more useful for you. And I'm certainly happy to have a conversation with you after about how we can, um, we can build on that and what will make it useful for you as well. In terms of the digital infrastructure for payment, I think the ability to move money is hugely important to not only economies but to um, facilitating welfare payments, to allowing uh, to, uh, um, allowing the state to function, allowing individuals to flourish. Where there is, I don't think it's so much the investment infrastructure. We, in the UK, we have a really, really strong and competitive infrastructure. 
cards, accounts, accounts, and other things as well. I don't think we even need M-Pesa because that was to avoid, that was to bypass the well, to replace the need or the availability of an infrastructure there. What we need is um, greater. This covers comes into the uh, the whole challenge of ensuring that uh, people have the appropriate skills greater understanding or empowering people to be able to use different forms of payments and if people want to use cash fantastic we support that and we will allow people to use cash but there is increasing evidence that and as we saw during the pandemic when face-to-face -face transactions essentially um, ceased for a period of time people who weren't able to use digital payments or use our, um, websites to access their public services suffered so I think that is where the real um, opportunity lies and again using the uh, the our um, growth score can help pinpoint those areas where there is a higher uh, lack of digital understanding in others and digital inclusion and financial inclusion go hand in hand so if you're going to address exclusion in one you have to address exclusion in the other as well and again being able to target that intervention on a postcode level is hugely important then it'll stop and on a purely uh, uh, efficiency level efficiency level it'll stop uh, local councils wasting money trying to uh, fix problems in one area where um, it could be better served in another area I think. so Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, Tom, probably you don't need to get into the technicalities yeah. of the MasterCard <laughs> uh, data, but yeah, on any of those other questions. Just, just, just quickly on, on the first question, I, mean, I think I mean, the, the idea of sort of basic economics teaching is, is an interesting one. I think there's another way that data could be, could be used more effectively, particularly when it comes to um, young people thinking about their potential careers, and that's making use of the data that the DfE is increasingly compiling on the sort of pathways that people who take different courses then go on to. And you know, people who do this type of course tend to earn this much money and work in this kind of sector. And I think one way of sort of bringing, bringing young people into this conversation, getting them thinking more about um, you know, future career paths and so on, would be to use data to actually explain um, what, what different courses mean. So I think there's, there's often a problem that, that people are not particularly clear. You know, they might do a particular course, but they're not sure exactly where that's going to have them end up. And just, just on the point about interoperability, I'll, I'll expand it slightly, which I think there's real potential if we can join up data from different sources. And that's both within the public sector, for example, joining up data on earnings records and um, education, but also where possible between the public sector and private sector sources of data to get a really full picture. I was at a round table this morning looking at um, the role of skills policy and discussing how the government has great data on the supply of skills, what skills people have, but actually it's the private sector that tends to have better data on demand of skills and actually it's by bringing those things together, and by demand I mean what, um, what businesses are looking for in different areas, by bringing those together at a local level you get a much fuller picture. Um, so I think that's where there's more potential for data as well. Okay, thanks. Louise, on any of those points? I'm not sure if there's any... So There's also the tidal power question. I don't know if that's an option. For <laughs> I'm happy assets. to address it. Okay, I'll, I'll go on the, uh, the the skills and the life skills, which I think was was really at the crux of, of your question. And I think Tom's point around how that data can be used for people in terms of determining careers is really important. And of course, that can then be linked to the skills that they need, how we fund skills and education, because I think that that whole piece needs to be looked at in its entirety. But I think we can also take it back further. Um, and I mentioned earlier about school readiness and we know through you know particularly after the last couple of years the impact that that's had on young children particularly in the most deprived areas and um, when they then go to school obviously much harder for them to learn and they, it really does raise questions around life skills for them and, and their parents who in many cases have, have not learned them either um, and you mentioned there about you know, cooking and managing money and lots of what we're doing around some of the outreach work, um, particularly in the school holidays where we have the holiday and activity programs, which are aimed at youngsters on free school meals. And we've actually expanded that in Essex um, by putting some more money into it, that we are trying to do a whole family approach, which does try and support families around how to manage money and and really basic cooking skills, you know, how, how to how to boil a bag of pasta and put passata on it. I mean, you know, some of it, it's, it's, it's just not there. Um, so that, you know, there, there really is a need there, but I think that whole family approach is really important if we're actually going to you know, drive out the change for the next 20 years that Tom was talking about earlier. No, I absolutely agree. I think it is about those life skills and, you know, being work ready. We've got far too many, you know, young people who come through the school system, don't know what they want to do and haven't, the pathways aren't there. You know, we need to have much clearer pathways through from education to employment and um, I mean 
when I visited um, our local uh, technical college. There's um, real, you know, lots of people on great courses who've got, um, you know, loads of people doing beauty as well and hair. And but the thing is, they don't do anything that's about actually how do they then apply that. You know, those roles are for people who are going to basically go and set up their own business or rent a chair in a salon. And they have nothing about how do I actually run that business. So, you know, it, we're setting people up to fail there. If we're putting people on those sort of courses, that then there's nothing to go alongside it. Um, in terms of the points you made about energy, you know, I think we are where we are now because of the lack of investment and not necessarily... Um, you know, in the last 10 years, but this is, you know, going back into the previous uh, Labour government where there was a massive lack of investment in our energy infrastructure in this country, um, particularly as well in nuclear, you know, and I think the work that we're now doing on developing uh, SMRs as well, I think is, you know, fantastic opportunities for uh, small modular reactors uh, in this country and for us to actually um, you know, be a world leader in some of these things. If we if we do, we were already obviously a world leader in wind uh, power and solar power. Um, so you know, we need to take more advantage of that. And I think you know, tidal power is is one of those as well. Um, personally, I'm not sure we could do it in Stoke-on-Trent. Maybe uh, on the on the River Trent, we'll put uh, <laughs> something. But um, you know. Well, yes, yeah, the River Seven definitely, but um, you know, I think um, you know we, we definitely need to look more at these options and, and take advantage of you know because in this country we really are blessed with our our natural uh, you know wind uh, wave uh, and and we don't get as much sun but we can still <laughs> use it, uh, it it quite a lot. But um, I just also wanted to to touch on uh, this digital digital point and. You know, the digital infrastructure in this country does need more investment. I think, you know, for people to be able to access it as well. Um, what we've been doing in um, Stoke-on-Trent is that we are now connecting everybody's house to fibre broadband. So by the end of this year, we are having fibre broadband going into everybody's, to the, to the, not, to the, not just to the box, uh, but actually direct into people's homes and into businesses. Um, we've had the whole city's been, well, it feels like it, the whole city's been dug up for the last uh, year to 18 months. Um, but we are going to be the first gigabit connected uh, city in the whole country. And I think having that high advanced level of connectivity is so important to enable people to access uh, you know, some of these products, to be able to take advantage of where the, you know, the future industries and future technology is going to be heading. Um, and I think you know, that is where... In, in communities where levelling up matters most, actually this is where we can make a huge transformation. I think the digital and tech industries, the gaming industry, which we are you know, uh, leading on in Stoke-on-Trent, is, is something that I think has huge potential in, in those communities where levelling up matters to create the really high-skilled, well-paid employment opportunities that we want to see. Great, thanks. Um, I think we've got time for maybe one or two quick further questions. Um, okay, yes, uh, gentlemen there. And final call, but yeah, please go ahead. So I'm uh, Nathan Long from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, we, this is a really interesting conversation because we've just done a similar exercise where we've built an index which me measures household financial resilience. So complete believers in the, the role of data in helping decision making really really interested tom in your uh, position on evaluation uh, because we see that as potentially a problem with the regulator as well as particularly when you're moving to an outcomes based approach how do you kind of identify the outcomes what are the measures for that and i guess tom mainly directed at you have you seen any examples of good international practice on this okay any other question otherwise well, that was a question mainly for yeah. you, Tom, but I think also <laughs> if anyone else has any thoughts on what are the, maybe not necessarily internationally, but really the best examples you, you've come across of how data has been used to, to really improve policy making and, and, and outcomes. Uh, Tom, do you want to go first? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, and I think we often talk about, you know, we want to focus on outcomes and not outputs, and that's great, but you need to make sure that you're then measuring things properly. And inherently, outcomes are kind of multi-determined. They're determined by lots of different things, and therefore, 
the link between a particular intervention and outcome is not always as clear as it is with an output. I think that, I mean, the white paper is a good example here of you know, the missions are, some of them are outputs, but lots of them are outcomes. And I think that the key is being very clear from the start what you're measuring. And I think evaluation actually has to start not after you've intervened, but before you've intervened, because it's at that point you can really plan before sort of ex ante in, in, in advance what is the success going to look like as this area or this set of people that are not going to get this intervention as this set that are. And so you can actually develop that plan from the start. And I think, I think that's really important. Mm. On, on international examples, I think and Jack mentioned that sort of inherent problem with, with democracy, I think was the way, <laughs> the, way, the way he put it. But it's certainly not the case that there's lots of great evaluation going on everywhere else and the UK is an outlier. Um, but I think, I mean, certainly in, in, in Germany, I mean, in the US probably is the best example where they have the advantage that they've got loads of different states and therefore they've effectively got lots of random policy experiments going on all the time. But there's particularly an example, I think, of the way that data held by government has been allowed to be used by researchers who have then done really good, um, really robust analysis. And actually, it's something we've not talked about today, but we shouldn't always expect all of the analytical capacity to be in government. And actually, safely providing data to researchers can also be a good way of, yeah. of furthering our knowledge base. Yeah, US federalism sometimes described as a laboratory of democracy, isn't it, for exactly that reason. Um, Jack. Well, I think, you know, in terms of what, we've just, what you've just been talking about, actually, you know, we, we do need to learn more lessons internationally as well. You know, we should take advantage, not just look in, you know, in Chile and in, in the UK, actually take advantage of some of the great examples in America, in other parts of the world, where they, they are doing these things as well. And, I mean, Stoke-on-Trent is somewhere that has a bit of a tendency sometimes to, to look at ourselves and not look beyond. And many of these places do. You know, we need to actually be taking, why wouldn't we take the best of what's been achieved throughout the country, throughout the world, to, to, to uh, take advantage of that and, and to really, because we, we don't have the solutions to everything. We don't, we shouldn't, you know, think that we have the best solutions to all of these problems. Um, but we should try and learn from that and really refine that to make sure that we're, we're taking action. But in terms of what you initially said about what examples do I have of where you know we've seen this in action? You know, I think um, what what springs to mind is where um, we've had Stoke City did um, actually at Stoke City Football Club did some work looking at the power of football economically, mm. you know, and how that can uh, have an impact on the wider economy. And they did that work. Um, I think it was with Ernst Young um, to to look at a data-led approach about what is that economic impact uh, on the local economy and the local area on on. Uh, aspirations as well and skills and how that has you know a much wider impact than just uh, you know the game yeah um, I'm sure on uh, local pride as well which is another exactly, leveling up indicator you know, actually. so so I think it, it, it you know it, it is those sort of studies which can make um, you know a massive impact in us understanding the benefits of these things and really learning from some of that yeah, yeah. I mean, impact on local pride probably depends on results at any any given season. Yeah, not, we, we didn't do too well last time. <laughs> <so. laughs> um, Louise, have you got any final quick thoughts? Yeah, just sticking, I think, with the, um, the question around an example of where data has been really important. If we look at what we've done in the digital space in Essex over the, the last couple of years, there was obviously a big drive during lockdown to get devices to families for homeschooling, etc. Um, but we've carried that on, and you know, the devices are one thing. If you can't get online or you haven't got the skills to use it, then you know, you're only part of the way there. So we've actually teamed up with three of the big internet providers because they hold the data around you know, where, where it, there is access, where there isn't, and what the options are. And um, we're about to launch a pilot with them, actually, where they're going to give us some free access for six months for, for targeted um, youngsters. Um, and, and care leavers are included in that as well. And then thinking about what that means from a skills perspective, which sort of brings me full circle, I suppose, in terms of what can we do as, as the council. Um, and we're running a lot of um, digital workshops and skills workshops, again, via the libraries, but also partnering with the adult community learning to try and make sure that we're getting the skills into the communities that need it as well. So it's that whole sort of triangulation, I think, but it, it all ultimately stems from, from the data. Um, which are the families, which are the communities that need the devices dis you know, disproportionately, and then using the, the, the data that partners can bring to the table mm -hmm. as well. 
So if it's a, a closing statement, then I think it would probably be um, you know, making sure that we're acknowledging what it is that whatever the organisation that we can do on our own, but also thinking about that more broadly. And when we've got the data and the evidence there, how does that then link in with partners to be able to actually achieve so much more? Great, thanks, Louise. And uh, yeah, final words for you, for you, Ben. Um, yeah, I think the in terms of don't you don't have to look too far for great examples of uh, data sharing. The pandemic was the mother of invention, essentially. It was necessity, and in the UK, we really, really. Uh, um, worked very well across both public and private sectors to deal with a real need for um, insight as to where to focus interventions. And I think there's so many good examples. We did some of it, but there's so many other good examples in the telecommunications area, internet providers, all helped develop uh, insight for the government where to insight. I think that's, that's really important. That relationship between public and private sector is hugely important, and the EY paper is hugely interesting because it was a national level paper that focused on different football teams. And it's an example of setting the parameters of how we were the first. Data. Yeah, yeah, you were the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But other, other football teams as well. But it's a great example of setting parameters of how to look at data on a national level or on a central level, and then doing the research on a local level as well to provide that insight. So I think that that's the key. Think national, focus local. Okay, okay, great place to end. Okay, so, uh, well, thanks all for coming and for the questions. Uh, thank you again to MasterCards. And, yeah, let's thank the panel in the usual way. <laughs>